You are listening to episode 65, A Conversation with Rachel Engstrom. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. On today's episode, I am so excited to be here speaking with Rachel Engstrom. Rachel's husband was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia when she was 28 years old. All of a sudden, she found herself being thrust into this journey of being a cancer caregiver and all that that entailed, navigating diagnosis, treatment, insurance, hospital stays, time off work, employment, finances, and much more. Unfortunately, her husband Grayson passed away two days after her 31st birthday, and all of a sudden it was, now what? Rachel joins me today to share that story, what life was like taking care of her husband who had cancer at such a young age, and what was like after for her, how she walked out of the hospital that day after he passed, what she did the next morning when she woke up, and what she's doing now years later. Rachel has written a beautiful book, which is part memoir, part guide and how-to about navigating this journey. It's called Wife, Widow, and Now What? And it really is a must read for anyone who is going through a difficult time and needs a little bit of support, as well as help finding all of those resources that can be really challenging to identify in the moment. I hope that you enjoy this conversation, and I'm so honored to welcome Rachel to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Hello. (laughs) So I know you have a really interesting story to share. Um, And let's start by just having you, you know, introduce yourself, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, all of that good stuff. Yeah. So I am Rachel. I am 39 and just turned 39 a few weeks ago. I live outside of Minneapolis. I moved here almost 21 years ago at 18, not knowing one person to go to the university of Minnesota. Uh, I'm from what I deem a small town of 40,000 people in Michigan and just wanted to get out, live somewhere where, you know, there were more, um, opportunities, more culturally diverse, things like that. And I actually didn't plan on staying here, but I met someone when I was 19 and ended up getting married and the rest is history. Um, For work, I work for a behavioral health insurance company and get people connected to counseling. I've worked the last 13 years in mental health. Um, I actually interviewed for a job when I was in grad school Um, I thought it was an assisted living with seniors. And then during the interview, I actually realized it was with serious and persistent mental illness clientele, played it off like I knew. (laughs) 
and that ended up opening a whole career for me in mental health. So it was kind of funny how that happened, but, um, I really enjoy helping people. And unfortunately there's still so much of a stigma associated with getting help and talking Mm -hmm. and things like that. So, um, I really like helping people understand, you know, it's okay. Everyone should call in for, you know, counseling and have the support that they need. And I certainly, you know, as we'll talk about, I've had a lot of really hard things happen and it's just great to be able to connect people with resources. Specifically, what I do is if you are not aware of it, um, the employee assistance program is a program where people can get counseling at no cost if their employer has prepaid for these sessions. So it's really, really cool to be able to offer people something that they don't have to pay for Mm -hmm. to get help and things like that. So that's what I do. So, I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about that because, so there is such a huge stigma around mental health Mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of it is also cultural and we see that. Um, so for how, so someone calls in, right. Walk me through that. Does the employee have to like first check that like their employer has paid for this? Like if I am an employee of any company and I am struggling and I say, I really need to reach out for help. Like, how does that happen? Yeah. So I would say like half of the people have coverage with Cigna in general and half the people just have their EAP employee assistance program. So people call in and they've been referred by their supervisor, HR, whatever that may be. Um, so they call in and I do intake asking them if they've had any thoughts of hurting themselves or others, because we do have crisis clinicians that can help, you know, because people, um, really are sometimes at their darkest days and things like that. You know, I've had people that are ready to jump off a parking structure, different things like that. It's rare. Um, but things like that really do happen. And it's nice to know people are there and they authentically care. Um, so I'm trained with all that kind of asking people how they're doing, but they call in and I either, um, get them a list of people in their area that specialize in what they're going through, or we try to find like a first available appointment for them. Um, you know, it's mental health, substance abuse, sometimes both, um, different things like that, but people are just so, I'd say half the people are just, you know, really gung ho and they want to get it in there. And half the people are just like, oh my gosh, I've never done this before. I don't know, you know, what to do. And they're calling in. And for some people, it literally is like the worst day of their life. Their child has died, their spouse has died, you know, they lost their job, whatever is going on. So being able to connect them to something where they can go talk it out is pretty powerful. It's such an important resource. Um, how do mm-hmm. you, you know, and this is for anyone in the country, right? So you're based in Minneapolis, but that's, it's, it's anywhere. Yeah. Yep. Yep. If you're, if your company has this with us, um, this product that they've pre-purchased for their employees and what's really cool is it's for the employee and anyone within their household as well. That's really, um, so mm-hmm. have you seen an uptick in calls during COVID or after, you know, kind of in this time where there's so much anxiety about re-entering the world and masks and no masks. Yeah. Yeah. I have. And I think that it's, there's just more openness. Um, I was actually on a podcast yesterday and someone was asking like, who inspires you or what inspires you? And I was saying the fact that I just feel like as many negatives as there have been with COVID and like personally me, my brother was seconds away from dying in the ICU from COVID. So it's, I mean, it's just, it's all touched us in different ways, but you know, as many negatives as there are, there are positives. And the fact that this is the first time as horrific as it is, if you can spin it in a positive way, which is my whole life, what I've been trying to do with the things that I've been through is that this is leveling us all on a playing field. 
of, as you know, in oncology, the people have that are patients going through this and their families, they have to quarantine. They don't have a choice. They have to wear masks. They have to be super careful. This is something that's leveled us all, Mm -hmm. humble us all where we're all in the same space. And I think a lot of people are just realizing like, it is okay to talk about it. So I'm really inspired. What I was saying yesterday to this other person that asked me this question was I'm really inspired by people just talking about how they're feeling, whether it's on Twitter or I don't really access it, but I know a lot of people read it or whatever that's called. Um, but Facebook and these different platforms where people are just saying, I'm struggling, I'm having a hard time. And I think that that's really powerful because people need to know they're not alone in it. And yeah, a lot of people are calling and it's a lot of burned out parents from doing school at home and <laughs> all those types of things. Yeah, it's been, it, it definitely, I think, leveled the playing field. You know, we talk about in cancer, um, you know, I talk to my patients a lot about how even if you've been diagnosed with an early stage cancer and you're going to be okay, there's this almost this kind of grief and post-traumatic stress that happens with a cancer diagnosis because your life has changed, right? You are this, you're you know, you're still here, but you're, you had this pre-cancer self and now there's a post-cancer self and it's okay to, that's your life altering, life-changing event. And so for many Mm -hmm. people, COVID was that life-changing Yeah. And I think it really showed so many people about how, you know, that our oncology patients know this, that can't, tomorrow is not guaranteed. And, right. and um, it's been really just the repercussions of COVID. I, I don't think we've begun to see some of them yet. It will be really interesting, like 20, 30, 40 years too. what it will be like in kids' history books. Like, what's it, you know, what's it going to be like? I know. We're going to be like, well, we remember, you know, it's like, I mean, for for most people, it is really the life-defining moment of, of their, you know, it's equivalent yeah. to their major, you know, it's like 9-11, right? That's something that we will always remember. And it's really hard, like trying to tell my almost 10-year-old stepdaughter, like, my dad, who's almost 82, I was like, can you tell her how this has never happened in like 80 plus years? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. this is not normal. This should not be happening. No, not. But not. then again, we're so fortunate that we haven't lived through, at least most of us, these kind of catastrophic pandemics that many other places in the world have. Yep, absolutely. So switching gears a little bit, yeah. tell me about, you know, you talk about kind of hard things. And so tell me about some of those hard things. Yeah. So I, like I said, I met this guy when I was 19 and things were great. He worked nights. So I credit having a, what I call the space age, easy marriage that we, you know, it was in my twenties, growing pains, things like that. Um, we'd fight over stupid stuff, household chores, whatnot, but he worked night. So I didn't see him Monday through Friday until he actually got sick. Um, so from 2001 to 2011, I didn't even see him Monday through Friday. Really. It was like ships passing in the night. When I was 22, we got married. And when I was 28, the summer fall of, um, 2010, I started having these horrific pelvic pains. Um, I was driving home from work one time and it felt like what I would imagine childbirth to be like. And I went home and laid on the bed and wrote out the pain. And I later had a surgery to figure out what it was. And it ended up that I was having ovarian cyst rupture and, um, I had endometriosis. So I was dealing with my own, you know, anxiety, depression, loss. I might not be able to have kids, all these kinds of things kind of got a grip on that, got a hold on that. And then 
for New Year's Eve 2010, my husband had a fortune cookie that said, you're about to have a major life change. We didn't know 15 days later, um, after him feeling really ill and having uh, blood transfusions and then a bone marrow biopsy and, you know, getting misdiagnosed and then having the bone marrow biopsy, he was ultimately diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia at 35. So he was put in a clinical trial here at the university of Minnesota that we chose to have him in. Thank God, because that ended up giving us a lot of time and he was so sweet. He did extra bone marrow biopsies and spinal taps and her fecals and all those kinds of things just to help other people. And his whole drive was, I need, I have to go through this anyway. So if I'm going to do this, I might as well do this to help people as well. Um, so he was impatient for five weeks and I don't have any family here. His dad died when he was a teenager, his mom, um, kind of a toxic person in my life, in my world. Um, you know, I was the girl that, you know, dyed my hair, all these different colors and had facial piercings and tattoos. And, you know, I didn't eat meat and I stole her baby. So it's always all this controversy. So that was kind of a difficult thing along the journey, which I openly, I changed everyone's names in my book. So I could talk about the realities of the family dynamics with illness and all of these things. So the first five weeks, it was just me and it was, you know, working eight hours then running home to let the dog out, then running to the hospital. But I had to learn as well how to navigate, you know, diagnosis, treatment, insurance, disability, employment, all those different things. And very early on, I learned of the resource from someone in the hospital that told me of CaringBridge. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, it's a great, great resource. But yeah. Talk about it because some people may not be. Yeah. So CaringBridge, instead of people sending you text, emails, phone calls, when you're on a medical journey, there's a website. It's actually here close by out of Minnesota. You can do your medical posts on there, all your updates, your medical posts. So then anybody that wants to know about your journey, if they sign up for it, they will get that in their email box. So I felt such a kinship to people that were really far away. I had people from my church, my parents' church all over the you know country um, is supporting us via that. I, we also had, his name was Grayson, a team Grayson Facebook page. So I'm getting all this emotional support via that, even if it's just a like, or uh, we're praying for you, thinking of you, things like that. So when he came home, he was like a newborn baby. It was very scary. He was six two, naturally about 175, 180 pounds. He got down to 145. I just wanted to bubble wrap him. Um, and it was, you know, we had our TV and the couches and where we would hang out in the basement. And I knew he'd be too weak. So buying new things for our living room upstairs, getting, you know, shower chair, ta- uh, grab bars for the shower, all that kind of stuff. Like the first week that he was home, I remember going back and forth to Walgreens like eight times or something like that, you know, spending a thousand dollars. And it's just, as we know, it's very expensive to be a cancer patient and all those things that are not covered. Um, So dealing with all that, researching online, figuring out how to get extra, you know, gas cards, whatever we can, resources, things like that. And my parents had had a discussion. It was so hard not to have them here. I'm the youngest of four. I'm very independent, but I'm also the baby. Like I want my mom and dad, my world's falling apart. Right. And there's two States away in Michigan. And they decided at 65 and 72, they'd been married 45 years. Now it's 55. They're 75 and 82. We're going to come live with Rachel and take shifts and take care of Grayson and take them to all of his appointments. So they ended up living with us 18 months of his 27 months of illness. 
which at first I was like, oh my gosh, no, my mom and dad, you know, I don't want my dad folding my underwear, my mom all up in my world. (laughs) But it ended up being an amazing gift. So he got a lot better. And in this clinical trial, he had to go in five times a week for three months, then three times a week, you know, for months and different things like that. So it was quite a heavy um, chemo regimen. So of course I couldn't do all that with work. So it was amazing that my parents helped and he was in full remission when he came home after those first five weeks. Um, we even went to Las Vegas the following April to the Young Cancer um, Survivors Conference in mm-hmm. 2012. I did my first half marathon walking through the for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, found amazing kinship through that. Um, and then unfortunately, the fall of end of August of 2012, on our eighth wedding anniversary, we had to um, admit him to the hospital again. He had relapsed and he was going to need a bone marrow transplant. And it was just so traumatic, more traumatic for him because a, he didn't want to have to do all of it again, but B, he didn't want me to have to go through it. And they kept trying to wipe out the cancer. They could tell when he first got sick, it was like infiltrated 97% of his blood or something like that. This time it was only 6%, but they knew it could mutate. We got to get it now. And they just could not wipe it out. So he had so many rounds of chemo. Um, and finally it, it worked near the end of December. And then in January of 2013, he is getting, um, what I call the space age radiation. He was like number 62 or 63 in the world for this radiation where neurophysicists at the university of Minnesota mapped his body for like 40 hours, um, for this kind of radiation. So that plus the chemo, he's going through that. I'm in another hospital across Minneapolis, getting another surgery for endometriosis, so when he has his transplant, we're sitting together on our, each on our painkillers, like, oh, <laughs> it was just like a calamity of errors. Yeah. And ultimately the transplant took the stem cells from an umbilical cord after 60 days. However, the um, side effects from the chemo and radiation just ripped apart his kidneys, lungs, um, bladder. He had a, um, I guess, they quoted it one in a million shot that he had, uh, he was on a ventilator, um, on life support in the ICU. He had a blood clot in his lung and he miraculously got better within two weeks. He got out of the ICU. Was it a rehab learning to walk again, do all these things. And then he went for an appointment, um, at its bone marrow transplant unit. And he was just more comfortable there. So they admitted him. Um, and then a couple months later on April 17th, I was told, I'm sorry they had to put him on oxygen again. He was been on low flow the whole time, but he just couldn't, he, he called me and he's, it sounded like he was, he's like, I sounds like I'm on one of those, you know, it looks like a world war II yeah. mask. And, um, they had to put him on super high flow oxygen. He wasn't breathing overnight. And then we said, I love you back and forth three times. And I had no idea that was the last time we were ever going to talk. So my dad and I rushed to the hospital and then I had several doctors tell me, I'm sorry. And they said, well, we'll wait, you know, this was Wednesday. We'll wait till Friday, April 19th, April 19th is my birthday. So then I turned 31 on Friday and they said, we'll wait two more days. And this whole time I had this like almost eerie, surreal calm about me. And I later learned, you know, I'm all of this. I'm very strong in my faith in God, but I credit it to the fact that I was actually able to be with him and see his body fall apart. As I later 
trying to get support in young widow groups on Facebook and things like that. And social media and support groups are in our world now. Like they weren't even in 2013, Mm -hmm. but I learned back. I'm going forward a little bit, but I learned there were people who had spouses come back from war and take their lives from the PTSD or die at war, die, you know, just tragic accident. I feel like I was so calm with him those last few days because I knew that that really wasn't him anymore. His body is just was giving out whatnot. Um, so I made him a heaven playlist. And then ultimately, um, two days after I turned 31, I took him off life support, signed the papers. He donated his body to the university of Minnesota. And, um, we did the rites of passage and everything with our pastor from our church and, um, family said their goodbyes to him. And then I held him for an hour and played the music until his heart stopped. And then I walked out of the door and I was Rachel 2.0 and it was like, now what, now what do I do? <laughs> So I decided to write a book, um, wife, widow, now what? And I started putting the caring bridge and why I brought that up earlier, the caring bridge and the Facebook post in chronological order. I did that a year after he died in 2014, because I thought this is so hard. You know, there's not a guide out there, but then I got kind of depressed putting that together. Um, six months after he died, I had a hysterectomy just cause I couldn't handle the pain anymore. Um, So it's loss upon loss upon loss. As you know, when someone young is diagnosed with cancer, they usually want you to harvest your eggs or freeze your sperm. Mm. So he died and then the frozen sperm, the cryogenic sperm. So then I had that destroyed and then I had my reproductive organs taken out and then his cat was sick and died. And it's like all these things kept (laughs) happening, all these losses. It was crazy. But I did go to Alaska for a couple of weeks by myself on this like healness journey. And I was always like, you know, tell me what you will. I've seen the Titanic. I will never go on a cruise, but I didn't think I'd be a widow at 31 either. So I took time to, I took time off of work. I took time to do these different things to work on healing. And then ultimately um, I stepped back from the cancer world. I did do another half marathon through the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in 2014 after he died. Um, but then I really stepped out of the cancer world until this last fall when I published my book. So it took me about two and a half years, but wife widow now what, how I navigated the cancer world and how you can too. And the more I talk about it, I'm learning that this can be for COVID, any sort of catastrophic Mm -hmm. illness, any sort of loss. Um, in my book, it's the first of its kind ever to merge a memoir with a navigational tool. So I have, when you're doing diagnosis, treatment, insurance, finances. I have a whole thing about how to revamp your finances, what to look at all of these things when people want to help, what to suggest, what would actually be applicable. So I have the whole cancer world, how I navigated it with hundreds of resources, along with Rachel 2.0, how I'm trying to navigate being a widow at 31, you know, how to plan a funeral on the cheap, how to reboot your life like a computer. Cause I didn't have a choice. I had to do it. Um, losing friends because people don't know what to do with a widow asking for help and having to suck it up and say, I'm here. Help me. Cause people go away after a catastrophic mm-hmm. illness or the funeral or whatever. So it's my story. It's a love story. My story, my story of redemption from going from a to Z back up to a again. So I'm really excited to get this out there because as you know, working with people who have cancer in their families, it's a very, very isolating journey. It's very lonely. You often feel like it's just you. So I'm really excited to get this resource out there to help people because especially when someone's first diagnosed, 
you just want it. It's like, number one, oh my gosh, I don't want them to die. Number two, get the medical treatment. Number three, I you know need some time off of work to spend with them. But number four, finances and then all the other things, but you're in shock. You can't really mm-hmm. figure out how to navigate all that. So I have this tool where I'm literally like, let me help you. Well, <laughs> so I'm pretty, true. I'm pretty excited. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's such a great resource because a lot I mean, all of the cancer literature out there is individual, you know, it's memoirs, it's stories, but it's mostly, mostly told from the perspective of the patient. Yeah. Not much out there in terms, I mean, there's some things, but, you know, you have a very unique um, book because it talks about what you went through, but also how to, how to navigate that. But tell me a little bit more about what it was like to find out that your husband, you know, was diagnosed um, what was going through your mind? You're young, right? This isn't supposed to happen. You're supposed to be in the yeah. time of your life, enjoying marriage. How did you navigate that initial diagnosis? Yeah, this was actually the time we didn't see each other enough for me to really get pregnant, probably. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we were planning, we were trying to have a family and things like that. So my first thought was like, don't let him know, don't let him know, don't let him know how scared you are. And I learned really early on. I think not on purpose. I just instinctually, maybe God whispered it in my ear. I don't know, but I instinctually knew, do not tell him exactly how you're feeling. Play it off like you're normal. At least that's what I did because he was going through his own personal Afghanistan. He had his own fears, his own doubts, which sometimes he expressed, sometimes he didn't. It's not like he was a private, unemotional person, but there's just too much to articulate. There's so many people in and out of the hospital room all the time. It's almost like you don't even have time to talk. And when you do, you're so you're too tired. So for me, it was a really, it was just a balancing act of like, and I write it all out in my whole book, but it's a balancing act of like, okay, well, people come in, they're out of the room. I'm going to put on my pajama pants where I'm going to pop in the movie. This is what we're going to do. This is our new life. This is our new normal. And I like, it was almost like putting on a coat and you're going outside in the winter. It was just, I put on the coat of our new life and that's, that's what it was. And it was, so when I would leave the hospital, which was horrific to leave him there because you just feel so helpless and you want to like put him in your pocket and take him with you. Cause it's just not normal in my job and mental health you know, you really have to check it at the door. So you don't talk about your life. You don't talk about those things. Mm -hmm. You have those boundaries with your clients. Um, So that was really tricky. So I would talk to my coworkers between, I did activities and assisted living with mentally ill adults. So I would do, you know, every now and then I talked to coworkers between things, but really I didn't talk about it that much. And I would just have a friend or a sister, my parents that I would talk to, you know, the 20 minute ride home from the hospital every night. I think it's so important to have someone in your life that's your person that knows like Eleanor right now where she is in life, this phone call is out of all about her. We're not going to talk about my life or my day. Mm-hmm. We're going to let her vent. We're going to get it out. And, you know, probably more than likely she'll do the same for me someday. Mm-hmm. So it was more keeping it in check. I was so scared initially that he was going to die, but I also feel like that's a luxury that you don't have because you're just in survival mode and you think we're young. This is going to be a bigger you know, it's kind of like when people, when they're stepping stones in a river and you try to go from what, from one, it was like, there was not rocks close in between. So I knew I was going to get my feet wet, but I thought I'd be able to climb up on the rocks and make it and our life would go back to normal at the end of the TV show. So I really was super positive thinking that all of it was just going to be great. And I actually really never thought he would die until they told me five days before he died. So throughout this whole thing, 
for the most part, I mean, it was really tough and I was drained and I was tired, but I would say for the most part, I was pretty much Sally positive because I felt that was my job to be that for the other half of us. And, you know, in, in retrospect, not knowing how, you know, do you wish you had more warning, you know, prior to those five days that things weren't going in the right direction or did they truly not know that? They might've known, but I didn't. And you know, what's interesting is I, um, there's a young, not young, there's a cancer group here, a caregiver group for men and it's called Jack's. It's really cool. They get together, not really talk. It's in the Minneapolis area. They don't really talk about stuff. They go do like guy stuff, you know, for caregivers of serious Mm -hmm. illnesses. And I'm their, I'm their resident Jill. Cause I've come along and I'm like, Hey, let me help. And I'm jumping back into the cancer world. I watched someone from the group. He made this amazing documentary called terminally optimistic. And I watched it yesterday. Actually. It's funny that you say that because it's his wife and two other women that have metastatic breast mm-hmm. cancer. So they're all terminally ill and they're all dealing with their families of knowing there's this impending doom, but not knowing when it is knowing that it's not curable. They'll keep doing chemo. And as I was watching that yesterday, it was like almost two hours. And as I'm watching that, I have different in and out, in and out, in and out thoughts of, you know, it's been eight years for me since he died, but I really think that I'm glad that it was the way that it was, because I think it's almost harder to have that and know, know that it's going to happen, but you don't know than, than this, because he got better, but then it was all illness and downhill. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I, I have not remembered this in years, but I, I'm just remembering now how I remember thinking I would rather shortly after he died thinking I would rather have him die the way that he did than him come home, get better, be super confident. And then in a year it gets worse and he dies. Like, I feel like it would have been a dirty trick for both of us. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yes. We would have had more time together, but he also had his hip collapse and start falling out of the socket from steroids as well. So he was in so much pain. I mean, there was just a combo of all these awful things at the end. He was on like the highest dose of fentanyl they could give him. So I just feel like it happened. It really did happen in the way that it, if it had to, that it should have. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I think it's beautiful that you were able to be with him and, you know, what you described with the playlist and just holding his hand. Yeah. You know, it's, I think sometimes if death is inevitable, at least it can be calm and peaceful and with, mm-hmm. you know, as you pass to be with people that, you know, will carry you across. And I totally know that that's a luxury millions of people have not had during COVID as well. And I don't take that for granted at all. And it's, it's one of those things, like I was saying, because I was able to be with him, that's a gift. I have no woulda, coulda, shoulda. Um, I have that closure. So I'm so grateful to have had that time. So you walk out of the hospital Mm -hmm. and you were married and you were a wife and now you're a widow again, like your book says right now, what, like we wake up the next morning. What's that like? Well, what was so weird is even my dad waiting to, so like that morning, my dad had stayed with him the last two nights of his life, my husband's life at his bedside in a chair sleeping next to him. So my dad 
my mom and I get there like Sunday morning and we switch off. So he comes down, he gets the car and then we go in and my dad had like the last hope calling him and telling him to come back an hour later was like one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. What was so bizarre is he's, he's gone. My mom and I are waiting for my dad to go get the car and I'm standing there and I I have like this gut feeling and it's one of those weird limbo things. Like when you're, you feel kind of like floaty, like, I know this sounds weird, but I know more, more people than me feel this way, but you know, when you're like almost, you're waiting and you're Mm -hmm. in line for them to scan your pass to get on the air, the airplane. It felt like that where it was so weird. Cause it was like, so much of me wanted to just run back upstairs and be like, come on, I love you. And over the last few days, I either just wanted to pull the plug as awful as that sounds or have him get up and walk out of the room with me. So at this point, I'm in this weird limbo of like wanting to run, wanting to get in the car. But the weirdest part was, and it took me a couple of weeks for it to fully sink in was I'd been a hamster running on a wheel and someone took the wheel away and I was still going. So it was really bizarre to wake up, to even be there the evening after his death at home. And then the next morning and the next few days of not having to know, um, his oxygen levels and his, you know, blood pressure and all those things, his plate, what are his platelets at? What are his white blood cell counts? It was just really weird to not have to keep track of all of it. And it was one of those things where I just, we did have a snowstorm a couple of days before he died in mid April and snow is one of my favorite things. And I woke up and my mom was like, look outside. And it had snowed three inches. And I was like, this is a sign. This is a sign. I'm going to be okay. But it was really weird because not only am I 31 and he's gone, but I have to plan a memorial service. I have to do like all these logistical things, which I write how to navigate all those things. But it was just really, really bizarre. And then what hit me about a week later was whether it's the person that cleans the room or the person that took my check card in the cafeteria, but all of those nurses, the whole, um, ecosystem of the medical people that had been my family Mm -hmm. for the last few years, knowing that they're gone. And all of a sudden these ties are just unnaturally ripped. That was really weird too. Um, so it was, it was a loss upon loss of like, how do I identify? What do I do? It was just really bizarre. And how did you come out of that or get through that? (laughs) I think a big part was sleeping. I had been so tired. Um, I'd been really blessed that, you know, when I switched jobs, excuse me, the year that he was in remission um, in 2012, I got a, at this new job, one of the things they offered was a life insurance policy. So I took one on me, I took one on him. So I had $30,000 that I would have not normally had. So I actually took off nine months, not working at all, quit my job. They did already, you know, people had donated their time to me. They're like, Rachel, you know, we really can't do much. So I just, I feel like I slept, but I had this weird insomnia as well. I'd sleep during the day and, you know, different things like that. But my oldest sister, when she came to see me a couple months after he died, she was like, oh my gosh, you look like a different person. You have color back in your face. It was just like, I had rested. I had finally rested. So it was just odd times, but freeing as well. And when you read my book, you can see one day I'm like, it's been two months and I can't believe how okay I feel the next day. I'm like, I can't stop crying. Cause it really is. It's a roller coaster. And it's one of those things that like when the bar goes down and you're in the ride and they're going to take off and you can't pick that bar back up that's exactly what it's like. You just have to ride the ride and hope Mm -hmm. for the best and get skills along the way. Yeah. I think that's a great analogy. I mean, you just have to 
be live through it, right? Nothing is yeah. gonna make it go away. Mm-hmm. And what does life look like now for you? So it's eight years and you it's know- eight years out. I, so through a series of what I call licking the bottom of the barrel, falling on my face many times, um, I was able to amazingly, God willing, I was able to keep the house that we had um, for many, many years. I now am remarried, which I'll get to, but, um, I worked three part-time jobs to keep this house that we loved, um, two with children and autism, one, a uh, lady in her mid fifties with MS. So all this personal care attendant PCA work. Um, I'm also doing picture, doing eBay, Amazon garage sales every weekend during the week, just hustling as much as I can. I'm dating an insane amount. Of, um, it's just, so I'm not embarrassed to say, I say it in the book, I went on 54 face-to-face dates, coffee shops, drink, whatnot with people. Um, and it was just insane. I mean, people are like, did you catch your husband's cancer? And you're like, how are you walking mm-hmm. around the world? Like, <laughs> so, yeah, what did you actually, just as an aside in dating, right? Like, is that something you was that on your, like, I don't know if you did online dating. Is that like on your dating profile or like, yeah, I did online like, dating on the first date. Like, how do you bring that? Yeah. Up? I think I had it for a while or I did, or I didn't, it went in and out of my profile. And this was all the time of online dates, Tinder, mm-hmm. plenty of fish, yeah. all the stuff. And it's so intimidating to people to date a widow because I don't have an ex I hate. So that was the toughest thing is people were just like, eh. and because I met my husband at 19, I didn't realize people lie. I was like so naive. So I'm like, not naturally me. I'm like drinking too much and, you know, mm-hmm. partying and different things like that. But it took me years later to not be so hard on myself and be like, this was widow Rachel. Mm-hmm. She was different at the time. Yeah. And then in the fall of 2015, I started a new job where I currently work and I had dental surgery and had antibiotics that ripped up my GI tract. So I got a colon disease, IBS. So I'm going through all this horrible, uh, my own body issues that last a couple of years. And alongside in the cubicle next to me is this older guy who's 11 years older than me, um, who has a four-year-old and this fall, we will have been married for five years. (laughs) Yeah. And he fully embraces and loves my late husband, which I know is not easy. It was really difficult at first. Um, he's just, he's amazing in that he fully embraces the fact that my Rachel 1.0 has made me Rachel 2.0, um, since publishing my book, like the, the organization I say, I volunteer for, I do trivia nights. I cover when they need further support, clutch groups, different stuff like that. I just finished as of last Friday, 10 weeks raising, um, as much money as possible for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which was one of the hardest things I've done in my life, including the cancer wife and widowness. Um, but I was able to raise fifty one thousand wow. dollars with my team of people behind me, so I can get a grant. My late husband's name, which I'm excited, especially since I have a friend who has CTCL, a form of mm-hmm. lymphoma that's not very well researched for whatever yeah. reason. So I'm going to put all of that to that. So I'm oh, very that's, excited. That's amazing. Yeah, I get to, yeah, I get to pick out what it is. Someone that I know she has two little kids underneath 10 and she's sick all the time. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. She's that's like, so really great like, that you can yeah. like target the, the money. That's really. Yeah. So it's like a portfolio where I can mm-hmm. put it where I want. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm just on as many podcasts as I can, because I want to get the word out there that you are not alone. 
Um, just like people used to gold mine and put it all on the line and go to the Yukon in the middle of freezing blizzards back in the day and not know whether they were going to make it or not, they would want gold nuggets. No matter what you're going through, how hard it is, how ugly it is, me telling you this doesn't make it easier, more fair, or better. But more than likely, you're going to get gold nuggets out of what you're going through that you're going to use later for whether you volunteer or a future career or being able to just say to someone like, I get it. I've been there. I get it. It is not fun when you're a 31 year old widow and people are like, oh, I understand. And you're like, no, you don't, you know, those things, but being able to actually get it and be there and do those things. I'm just like so pumped to have this resource to connect people with. So I'm just doing as much as I can um, to get the word out there. And I will never stop. I will never stop because it's horrible. It's horrible. I rarely cry about this um, because it's it's been eight years and I'm, I'm very much distanced from it in the fact that, you know, if I didn't have his name tattooed on my wrist, if I didn't have photo albums. If I didn't have people that knew him, I might not believe this has ever happened because I've worked so hard to get here. But the last day of this campaign where there was a big gala, it's normally a big black tie thing for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society last Friday, I just could not stop crying for about an hour and a half because I was just furious with cancer. I was furious that it stole, even though I'm happily married again, and I have this life where I'm very happy, I was just furious with cancer, that it steals people, that it robs people Mm -hmm. of their life, that it's robbing people's children. I know of their childhoods and that it makes you your new normal. And I, you know, I'm not sure cancer will be cured in my lifetime, but treatments can get a lot better. They can certainly get a lot better with research and things like that. So I'm just going to keep getting on my little social worker soapbox and fighting it and telling people you are not alone. Here's my book. I did it. And, you know, if I had one of the most horrific things happen and blow up my life with a grenade um, and get through it and be this positive, I think a lot of other people can too. So I'm excited to share that. You are doing really, really wonderful work. And I I know that will make a big impact. And, you know, you're right, cancer. And I think what you said is that it is okay to have all those emotions, right? And you've kind of gone through them in this last hour, right? It's okay to be sad and happy and joyous. And it's okay to feel all of those things at the same time. And I think cancer Mm -hmm. does that, right? You can be angry and then laughing five minutes later. Yeah. All okay. Um, Before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to bring up? Um, you can find me wife widow now on Facebook and, um, Instagram, and you can find my books just on Amazon. It's in paperback or you can fill out the budget sheet and stuff, but I actually have a huge section in the finances part with all the different organizations I could find up to date at the time to last fall, uh, where you can get grants, how you navigate social security disability. When I'm talking about all this, I have hyperlinks. So if you get the ebook version, you can literally click on it and it will take okay. you to, how do That's I get a great. gas card? How do I, whether it's, you know, breast cancer or colon cancer or whatever, I have links to those different kinds of cancer for you to be able to get resources and stuff because, you know, no one really wants to talk about it, but you do need to get your healthcare directive. You do need to get your living will. You do need to get all those things in place. Um, I have all of those after he died. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to have all this just for me. Yeah. Um, even at 31, but it's these things. Um, and it, you know, I really want to say that my book, it, you don't have to have cancer or 
be with someone or close to someone that has cancer. This is, I think it's a good read because it's a survival story of how to get through it. But I also have really funny things happen to me as well. Um, so it's, it's a story of redemption of how you can have something so awful happen and still come out. Okay. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. We very often hear the story from the perspective of the patient, but it's really just as important to hear about the perspective of the caregiver and how such a diagnosis affects not only the one that's diagnosed, but everyone around them. And I think that Rachel really embodies that experience. I highly recommend reading her book, Wife, Widow, Now What? You can find Rachel on Instagram and Facebook at the same handle, Wife, Widow, Now What? And as always, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Dr. Toplinski. If you enjoyed this episode and have enjoyed other episodes of the Interlude Podcast, I would be honored if you would leave a rating and a review over an Apple podcast, as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you again for being here, and I will see all of you next week.